Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. As we continue to uh, go further in Mark's account of Christ, which is really Peter's account of Christ. Uh, Mark and Peter were very close, and uh, Mark got much of what we're reading from the Apostle Peter and his close association with him. Uh, Mark 1, verses 21 through 28 is our passage today. Before I read, I just want to bring you greetings from Devon Hassler, who I spoke to yesterday. She uh, wanted me to tell you hello. Uh, so she's uh, struggling with her back as she was when she was here in this area, but uh, continue to pray for Devon. Uh, Mark 1, 21 through 28. Let's listen to the word of God. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. So they, they questioned among themselves, saying, Who is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This is God's authoritative word. He breathed these words out. These are his words, and may he bless what we've read, and let's ask for help as we study uh, these words together this morning. We do come, Christ Jesus, in your name, and we pray that uh, again, once again, you would quicken us with your Holy Spirit, that he would come and give us open eyes and hearing ears to see your truth here. As we look at this account, perhaps familiar, may we see it with new eyes. Uh, Christ Jesus, may you be glorified uh, through my words up here this morning. Uh, and may you change us as we read your word and put it into practice. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Uh, the year was uh, 1632, quite some time ago. Uh, the country was Sweden, and the king of that nation had recently passed away. His name was uh, Gustavus the Great. Uh, and so upon his death, the, the statesmen of that country uh, assembled, and they uh, were determining together what form of government they would have going forward. There were, there were many who suggested they adopt a republic, um, somewhat similar to the U.S. adopted. Uh, many wanted to continue with the monarchy uh, and suggested that they turn the throne over to the king of Poland at that time. Uh, but the chancellor of Sweden stood up in that meeting uh, and said, let there be no talk of a republic or, a, or of a Polish king, he said. For the great Gustavus has left an error. 
a daughter six years of age. Now, this was not known generally and came as a complete surprise to the men assembled uh, <clears throat> in that room. <clears throat> Excuse me. One of them said, how do we know that this is not a trick of yours? We've never seen this child. We were not even aware that Gustavus had a child. Uh, the chancellor replied, wait a moment and I will show you. Leaving the room, he returned with a little girl whom he placed upon the throne where only rulers of Sweden sat. And the man who had protested and expressed his disbelief pressed forward through the other men and gazed intently upon her face. Then turning to the assembly, he said, Comrades, I see in this child the, the features of the great Gustavus. Look at her nose, her eyes, her chin. She is indeed the daughter of our young king. That was enough. Young as she was, they acclaimed her Christina, Queen of Sweden. Mark is trying to do something similar in these first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark. He's trying to prove to his readers that Jesus Christ is God's anointed king, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. But he's not attempting it through facial similarity, not through similarity of nose, his eyes, or his chin, but through his speech. How do we know that Jesus is God's anointed king? How do we know he's the Messiah? By listening to the king's speech. Mark is going to describe two characteristics of the king's speech in the verses before us. There are two characteristics of Jesus' speech that reveal he is God's anointed king. Uh, the first characteristic of his speech is the authority of his word. Mark tells us, listen to the authority when he speaks. Let me mention three things about this authority to you this morning. This authority is revealed in the city of Capernaum. Um, uh, the authority of his words is revealed in the, in the city of Capernaum located in Galilee. Verse 21 says, and they went into Capernaum. Uh, the, the events we looked at last Sunday also took place in Galilee. Uh, let me get out of your way so you can see. Uh, it says Jesus walked alongside the Sea of Galilee last week. Uh, this is where he called Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John, but John, uh, Mark becomes more specific this morning and tells us that these events take place in the city of Capernaum right here on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Um, we'll see next Sunday that this is where Peter lives. Uh, Peter's home is in Capernaum. Uh, also, Matthew tells us that at the time being, this is where Jesus' home was. While we know that he grew up over here in Nazareth, uh, Matthew tells us that he made Capernaum his own town. And this was this is this region of Galilee and, and Capernaum in particular is where we'll see this morning's action and um, much else uh, take place. So his authority is revealed in Capernaum. Second, his authority is revealed in the synagogue. 
uh, we see this as verse 21 continues. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. We know Jesus isn't alone. We know that the four men he called last Lord's Day, well, uh, it, for us it was the last Lord's Day. Uh, for them it was uh, in the passage right above this. They're with him. Uh, verse 29 indicates that all four of these men are also present uh, with him in the synagogue. Uh, it's the Sabbath, which is Saturday, and they're in the synagogue, which means gathering place. There was only one Jewish temple located in Jerusalem, but uh, scattered across the Mediterranean world were synagogues, gathering places where the Jews met on the Sabbath. This is what the synagogue at Capernaum uh, looked like. Uh, you can see that toward the back here, uh, they've tried to picture kind of a, uh, let's call them bleachers, um, made of stone, no doubt. They can, they can create this reconstruction because part of that uh, synagogue is still standing. And they've been able to uh, come up with a plan of the synagogue and what it actually looked like. Not many were this elaborate. Uh, many were uh, located in homes. Um, but a synagogue was formed when there were 10 or more Jewish males who were at least 13 years old. Excuse me. These men were uh, made up of, of just the average town folk, uh, various occupations from all kinds of trades, fishermen, uh, merchants, laborers, in addition to their wives. And it was up to these men uh, to teach. They would read a section from uh, the Torah, the, one of the first five books of the Old Testament, and they would expound upon it. Uh, if a visiting rabbi was there, the visitor, out of courtesy, would be invited to offer a word of instruction. This is what's taking place in verse 21. Jesus, as a visiting rabbi, has been invited to give a word of instruction on that day. So his authority is revealed, secondly, in the synagogue of Capernaum. And then third, we see the authority of his word revealed in his teaching. As Jesus stands to teach in this synagogue, those present are struck by the authority of his word. Look at verse 22. And they were astonished at his teaching. Uh, Mark uses about six words, uh, six different Greek words to express astonishment or amazement. He'll use another one toward the end of our passage. Uh, but this one in particular means uh, that they were amazed, overwhelmed. Uh, they were dumbfounded. They were struck. Uh, they were shocked. Uh, in our day, we would say they were blown away by his teaching. Uh, and what caused this reaction? It goes on to say in verse 22, For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Who are these scribes that Mark mentioned? Uh, they were considered experts on those first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. Uh, they were regarded with high esteem. Uh, what they said was regarded as authoritative. Remember the old E.F. Hutton 
commercial when EF talks, EF Hutton talks, everybody listens. Yeah. I didn't think you would either. <laughs> because of their immense knowledge, um, they were treated with high respect. They were called rabbi, which means my great one. Uh, when they walked down the street, people got out of the way. When they came into a room, people stood. Uh, they were so, um, so, so much honor, shown so much honor that often they were regarded even higher than the high priest in Jerusalem. But because of these men, uh, almost, I, I want to say a great many of them were Pharisees. Because of these scribes, the Jewish faith in, in the time of Jesus, as you have read yourself, it had become cold and dead. The scribes didn't really teach God's word. They really stood and made theological pronouncements. They gave their theological opinions and, and really not so much based on scripture as, as based on what another rabbi said. And they would offer these varying opinions and really not get down to the word much at all. And those present here on that Sabbath morning uh, were left with their jaws hanging open because in their lives they had never heard teaching like Jesus' teaching. Never! What made his teaching so different? Well, one gentleman has uh, suggested six differences. And I, I don't want to labor these. I just want to run through them briefly. But there are six things that are different. Very, you, you, would, uh, you would think, duh, um, when you see some of these. But they are true. And first, and maybe the biggest duh of all, uh, is the truthfulness of what Jesus said. Jesus spoke the truth. And this means that the scribes were not always known for speaking the truth. Even as uh, um, Matthew 5 point, points out, sometimes their reasoning was pretty sketchy and, and evasive, trying to skirt around restrictions of the law. But Jesus simply told the truth. Uh, it, again, he said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Second was the content of what he said. Not only was it true, Jesus talked about uh, the the Jesus talked about things that held gravity, those things that keep you awake at night. How do I enter the kingdom of God and life and death and eternity? And the scribes were known uh, they were known for tithing on cumin. And so joins uh, ra uh, Rabbi, whatever his name is, uh, who was also a horticulturist, as he teaches us how to tithe on cumin this week. Fascinating, wasn't it? And uh, that's mentioned in Luke 42. Jesus talks about them tithing on uh, cumin and other herbs. These are, these are comparatively trivial things compared to eternal life. So Jesus is talking about things that really mattered to people. 
uh, there was also the structure of how Jesus spoke. The scribes were known for rambling on. Uh, and we've all been in, in lectures like that, have we not? Uh, Jesus' teaching was orderly, uh, often just expounding uh, straight from the text of the Old Testament. There was the method of his teaching. Jesus, as you know, as you've read the Gospels, how often he used illustrations from horticulture and farming. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a net. The kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers and other illustrations that people could actually connect to and that he could communicate truth through these illustrations. The scribes' teaching is described as uninteresting and typically dry as dust. So come to that one again, how to tithe cumin from a monotone scribe, and it'll change your life. Uh, the motive of his teaching was different. Uh, Jesus taught... Um, as one who loved sinners. And we know uh, from how he's displayed in the Gospels that he was concerned with their eternal welfare. Not only uh, did he love sinners, he pointed sinners to his Father and the love of the Father. It is clear, however, that scribes' teaching was heartless and insincere. Jesus spoke of them stealing widows' homes they were concerned for their own financial gain rather than the welfare of their listeners. And lastly is the source of his teaching that what Jesus said you know, was either from the text of the Old Testament or what he had heard his father say. Uh, Jesus says in John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And so whatever Jesus said was uh, either rooted in the text of the Old Testament or in uh, the character and in the attributes of his Father and even him very self. Uh, the source of his teaching was, uh, was the character of God. The scribes, as I mentioned earlier, they didn't draw from an infallible source of truth because they used fallible sources. Again, not referring to Scripture, but drawing on the teaching of other scribes and simply naming all these different opinions. And so, hearing this, no wonder their jaws are left hanging open because of the authority of his words and what he said. They'd never heard anything like this. It was riveting. It was alarming. And those present probably experienced what the book of Hebrews described, uh, which says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And compare this sensation of being cut to the heart versus the cold, dead orthodoxy of the scribes. 
That's why their jaws were left hanging open. They had never heard this before. Listen to J.C. Ryle comment on this religion of their scribes, the religion of the scribes. And Ryle wrote, let us take heed that our faith be a faith of the heart as well as of the head. Let us see that our knowledge has a sanctifying influence on our affections and our lives. Let's not only know Christ, but love him from a sense of actual benefit received from him. Let us not only believe that he is the Son of God and the Savior of the world, but rejoice in him and cling to him with purpose of heart. Let us not only be acquainted with him by the hearing of the ear, but by daily personal application to him for mercy and grace. The life of Christianity, says Martin Luther, consists in possessive pronouns. It is one thing to say Christ is a Savior. It is quite another to say He is my Savior and my Lord. Listen, intellectual faith alone just won't do. It is important that we know things. It is important that we know about the deity, meaning that he is God, deity of Jesus Christ, uh, that he was born of a virgin. It is important to know that. If he was not born of a virgin, he had a sin nature, no sinless sacrifice on the cross, if that's the case, no forgiveness from sins, if that's the case, no Christian faith. We must know some things, but it must never stop with our knowledge. It must, it must move past knowledge uh, to knowing Him on a personal basis. To have our affections stirred and renewed. Look, John Piper has made a living out of saying this. The command in Scripture says, delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself. You're commanded to delight. What does that mean? Well, friend, what do you delight in? What do your mom and dad see your eyes light up about? Woo! What does your spouse see your eyes light up about? And what do, what do your eyes do when Christ is brought up? Is it, oh, yes. It's a, it's, it's a calling well past typical American Christianity. It is not enough to know things. He calls you to have your heart engaged. Your affections for him arouse us. Not just that we're looking for some kind of emotional response. We're talking about genuine uh, passion and disposition for Jesus. This is what Peter wrote about uh, to the people in uh, Asia Minor. We studied this in men's Bible study um, 
Oh, let me find it. Grieved by various trials. Though you not have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Well, I won't ask you to raise your hand on how many of us in the room this morning feel inexpressible joy that's filled with glory. It would be way too convicting. No wonder their jaws are on the floor because they've never heard teaching like this. All they've had is cold, dead orthodoxy. I mean, it might have been right, but it was not pleasing to God. We know he's the king because of the way he speaks, the authority of his words. And so I ask you, has the word of God ever, ever struck you like it struck them present on that morning in the synagogue? Have you ever had the truth of, of God's word cut you to the heart? Or comfort you to the heart? Have you ever um, had the word, as the, only the Spirit can do, take that word of, of, of Scripture and apply it to you so that you think, I've never seen this before. And it's like, this is written for me today. Has that ever occurred? Now, it doesn't occur all the time. But sometimes when you really need that word and you sit down and open God's word and, and cry out to him, that sometimes it's almost like the phrase is glowing on the page because that's what the Spirit opened your eyes to that morning. Has that ever occurred to you? I pray it does. Again, we're not looking for that every morning, but there are times when we really need that and the Lord in His kindness provides it. Listen to the way He talks. I've never heard anybody speak like this. He teaches with authority. Well, and so we hope they conclude He must be the King. God's anointed King come to rescue well, we see his, uh, that he's the king not just in the authority of his word, but in the power of his word. His word has great power. Uh, this is the second characteristic that Mark draws out for us. Look at what his word can do, he says. And let me make three observations about this power. First, I want you to observe that his word creates conflict. Uh, it does not go down easily. Look at verse 23 now. And immediately, and, and some, this word, it's, it's Mark's favorite word, 41 times, but sometimes immediately doesn't say it just right. It's not like this man suddenly popped up from nowhere. Uh, so we should probably read it, and just then, or and then, uh, he's drawing us uh, our attention to it. And just then, there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And, and he cried out, um, 
What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Uh, it seems that this demon-possessed man, again, he didn't just pop up there at that moment, but he was probably there the whole time Jesus was teaching, uh, uh, perhaps a regular attender at this synagogue. And if he was, nothing that he had ever heard before had aroused his hostility until he heard Jesus teaching with authority. He attended the synagogue undisturbed until he heard Jesus speaking the very words of God. And that is what he could not tolerate. And he interrupts with a loud and unpleasant scream. Listen to Dr. Sinclair Ferguson comment on, th on this interruption. And he says, We do not know whether or not this kind of outburst had ever happened before in the synagogue at Capernaum. In any case, the situation was an indictment of the spiritual condition of the people. Was that congregation so spiritually dead that it had been possible for a demon-possessed man to attend without being disturbed by what was sung or prayed or taught? Apparently nothing had disturbed him before this Saturday morning. But on this Sabbath, the demon is terrified by Jesus. He knows who is standing before him. It is the very one who created him. The Holy One of God that will soon defeat him on the cross. The one who will cast him into the lake of fire at his second coming. He knows who Christ is. But that final day hadn't yet arrived. And so the demon screams out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? In other words, you have no business with us yet. It is not the final day. Go away and leave us alone. It creates conflict. The word of Christ arouses hostility and opposition. And you and I should not be surprised when the word of Christ that we share does the same thing. Jesus warned his disciples about this in Luke 12. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? This is not a good verse to read around Christmas time. No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And you've experienced this in your family sometimes, haven't you? Listen to uh, Pastor Ken Hughes. He says, from this encounter, Jesus and the demon, we know without doubt that whenever the authority of Christ, the Son of God, is invoked in preaching or teaching, in other words, through his word, there is a violent confrontation with the evil spirits who possess men's souls and rule their lives. And so, Mom and Dad, do you, 
Are you surprised when your children chafe under God's standard of holiness that you hold out to them in your house? Is peace in your home and acceptance by your children the most important thing to you? Or is it Christ's standard of holiness that he summons us to? Or are you surprised when someone gets angry at a family reunion when, when you share what the word says about something? Or, or are you surprised when one of your co-workers condemns you because of something that Jesus said in his word? He says, don't be surprised. His word creates conflict and hostility. Just be sure it's not your obnoxious shit way of sharing the word that's what's creating the conflict. I mean, don't be a jerk. Can we say that? Scripture teaches, do not be a jerk. <laughs> Let the word do the confronting and arouse the hostility and not just your personality. We see and observe first that his word creates conflict. We see a, another observation is that his word has power. There is inherent power in the word of Christ. Look at verse 25. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. Be silent more literally means be muzzled. That's uh, a reference to the device our vet sometimes has to use on our dog. Uh, she doesn't always care for the way he pokes and prods around her when he's doing his exam. And she will let him know she doesn't care for that. And so he'll have to put a muzzle on her mouth to keep her mouth shut. What a great picture this gives us of Christ's powerful word. Be muzzled. Ah, Stop talking and come out of him. And verse 26 goes on, And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. The demon, of course, has to comply with the word of the anointed king. But first, he violently shakes the man. Uh, that term, convulsing him, refers to a way that an animal will sometimes tear at its food, shaking its head back and forth. And then crying out uh, describes a shriek when the demon comes out of, out of the man. But all of this, if we could focus on the meaning of this and not the actual thing that he's doing, this shriek and, and cry and him coming out, it's a sure sign, isn't it, that the kingdom of God was at hand. The kingdom of God had come near that God's anointed king was standing there before them and that the kingdom of darkness had to retreat. His word has power. The words of the king are powerful words. They have inherent power to accomplish what he commands. And the third observation we note about the power of his word is that it amazes verse 27 says and they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying what is this a new teaching with authority he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him 
And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Uh, again, Mark is using a different word for amazement. There are, I mentioned he uses six altogether. They roughly mean the same thing. This one has a little uh, idea of, of being struck by something, of being knocked back. They were knocked on their heels. And, and notice what it is that amazes. It's, it's, that, it's that his words have power, that he commands even unclean spirits. How often have they seen Pharisees try to cast out unclean spirits and fail? But he commands them, meaning he gives them orders. He tells them what to do. And Jesus, as the Holy One of God, far, far outranks this unclean spirit. He outranks every unclean spirit, including Satan himself. Jesus, the Supreme One, commands, and the unclean spirit must do what he commands. That's what leaves their mouths hanging open. He commands unclean spirits, and they obey him. And this truth, as you could well imagine, spreads like wildfire throughout Galilee. The power of the king's word amazes. Have we ever seen a Pharisee do that? No. One time a Christian university student shared his uh, room with a Muslim student. And as they became uh, friends through the semester, their conversation turned to their faith. And the believer asked um, his Muslim roommate if he'd ever read the Bible. He answered that he had not. And then asked the Christian roommate if he'd ever read the Koran. And the believer responded to him, No, I haven't, but I'm sure it would be interesting. Why don't we read both together once a week in alternate books? And the young man, the Muslim roommate, accepted the challenge, and their friendship deepened, and during the second semester, the Muslim student became a follower of Jesus. And then one evening late in, in that second semester, he burst into the room and shouted at his Christian friend, you deceived me. What are you talking about, he asked. And this new believer opened his Bible and said, I've been reading it through like you told me and just read that the word is living and active. And then he grinned. You knew all along that the Bible contained God's power and that the Koran is a book like any other. I never had a chance. <laughs> and now you'll hate me for life, he asked. No, but it wasn't fair. <laughs> this powerful word amazes the people present. How do we know this is the king? Look at what his powerful word can do. Look at what his powerful word can do. This is what Mark is trying to prove. Jesus is God's anointed king. And how do we know it? We know it by listening to his speech. Not through facial similarity. Not through similarity of his nose, his eyes, or his chin, but his speech. 
We know Jesus is God's anointed king by listening to his speech. And it has two characteristics here in these verses. The authority of his word. Just listen to it, Mark says. Listen to him command. And second, the power of his word. Look at what his word can do. This same authority and power that we've been reading about this morning now rests with Christ's church. Jesus has conferred His authority on the church through His written Word. And regarding this authority, Jesus said, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's conferred this authority on His church through His written Word. He's also conferred His power on His church through the written Word. And regarding this power, the Apostle Paul wrote, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And again, Paul says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So Christ confers His power on the church through His word. What does this mean for you and me? It means it is His word. His authority and power working through His Word that saves us. That brings us to saving faith. His Spirit working through His Word is what draws us to Christ. Listen again to Peter described it. He says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God, if you know Christ, it's because someone shared the Word of Christ with you. And the Spirit of God was working at that moment, so you believed it. And you turned to Christ Jesus. And friend, that is why the most important thing we share with our friends who don't know Christ is His Word. It is The power is in His Word. His Spirit working through His Word. That's why I don't get excited about fog machines. <laughs> oh my gosh, do fog machines have the power to save someone? I defy you to find me a passage. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And you know after that, what's got the power to grow you up? I'll give you one guess. Yes. Oh, thank you for that anonymous person in the audience. It's the Word of God that has the power to build you up in your faith. And Paul says this, talking to the elders on the beach, And now I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace 
which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Uh, again, Peter says in First uh, Peter 2, uh, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. It's the word that causes spiritual growth. So let me, let me add to what Pastor Brian said earlier. Yes, we do have the word central. This is why we are obsessed with keeping God's word at the center of everything. We sing the word. Pray the word. Preach the word. See the word in baptism, in the Lord's Supper. There's one fifth one. I can't remember what it is. I turned 61 today, so four out of five is not bad. <laughs> On Tuesday, rather. See, I can't even remember when my birthday was. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It is, it is the Word that does it. And we stay riveted to that. It is what saves us. It is what will save our friends, the Spirit working through the Word. And it is what grows us as believers and followers of Christ. Man, listen to him speak. Do you hear the authority in his tone? Has anyone ever spoken with such authority to us before? And look what his powerful Word can do. Oh my, even the unclean spirits obey him. Jesus, let us love your word because your word leads us to you. Let us not become just intellectual Christians. We want to be Bible-saturated believers in love with you, Christ Jesus. Because as Brian mentioned, every place we open in somehow points ahead to you or points back to the cross. So work in us by your Spirit, the one in, who indwells us. Conform us to your image that your Word describes. Lord, let us be bold in sharing your truth with those around us who have yet to trust in you. Let us be bold to share your Word clearly. Make it effective. We would pray for the salvation of many of our friends around us. Uh, we ask that you would do this for your great glory, Jesus, and we pray in your name. Amen.